Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Hello and welcome to this second part of our discussion of the social doctrine of the Catholic Church. So in this episode, we're going to kind of round out our conversation by looking at terms like social justice, human rights, equality and solidarity. And oh my gosh, honestly, as Christians... It is so important for us to engage with these terms and these ideas, not just because they are important ideas in and of themselves, but also because in our contemporary sort of secular world, words like these have become associated with a kind of far left, almost, you know, socialist mindset, right? Like, you know, you see those signs on telegraph poles that say things like rally for equality or rally for human rights. And then it lists a bunch of things and you're like, hmm. Okay, I do not agree with any of those things. I don't think any of those things are a human right. And then, you know, slowly over time, those words like human rights and equality start to become almost kind of bent out of shape in our minds. And they start to stand in for things that actually have nothing to do with true social justice and true equality. And the danger is that then as Christians, we can kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. We might sort of think, well, social justice, human rights, equality, those are areas that don't concern me. As a Christian, I don't need to deal with those because that's in the realm of the kind of like weird barefoot hippie who's trying to get me to sign their weird petition. Now, as a former barefoot hippie, myself, I say rude. (laughs) But secondly, as a reformed barefoot hippie, I also totally sympathize with that. Like I now, I remember sitting on a bus for, it was the first time I realized I was no longer a wild uni student when I was sitting on the bus and and sort of driving through like the alternative side of town where I used to hang out all the time and looking out the windows and being like, oh, all these people with their different colored hair and their shoe, put your shoes on, get what, dye your hair brown and go get a job. (laughs) And I was like, well, no, what's happened to me? I am in my late twenties. (laughs) And it is tempting, right, to think that, you know, fighting for human rights is something that uni students do, but actually it's something that we should all be doing. We like we should all be social justice warriors in the best and truest sense of the word. We should all care about human rights and equality. But in order to do that, we first have to kind of strip away those socially constructed superfluous things that have kind of built up around those terms and understand what they actually originally fundamentally mean. Okay, so beginning with the idea of social justice, point 1928 of the Catechism says that social justice occurs when associations and individuals obtain what is their due. So in other words, it's when everyone in a society is receiving their fundamental human rights. Now, that's a a definition that probably most people would agree with, regardless of your faith or or political leanings. You would agree that that's what social justice is. But we might disagree on what we would actually define as a human right. So the term human rights is one of those terms that has sort of fallen victim to something that we've discussed in previous episodes, namely this idea that things are what I call them. So human rights aren't something kind of intrinsic and 
objective, they're actually socially constructed, which means that as a society, we get to almost democratically decide on what constitutes a human right. So I remember my mum used to be part of a social justice group that she ended up having to leave because they did this. They had a vote on whether or not abortion was a human right. And then when the majority of people voted yes, they were like, okay, great. Abortion is now a fundamental human right. And my mum had to be like, okay, bye. (laughs) And this is a fairly common mentality, especially in the Western world, that human rights are up for discussion that we can kind of change or add to our definition of human rights based on the kind of needs and desires of the people around us. However, this is not what the Catholic Church teaches. So point 1930 of the Catechism says that human rights are prior to society and must be recognized by it. So society doesn't define human rights, it can only recognize them. And that makes sense, right? That if you were trapped on a desert island and there was no one there to say what your rights were, you would still have fundamental human rights. So as a human person, purely because I'm a human person and not because I've done anything to deserve it, I have a fundamental right to be what I am. (laughs) Okay. And this is something that we could say about any living sentient being, right? Like a, a, a lion has the right to be a lion or a sloth should be allowed to be a sloth. Okay. And there are certain things that are natural to a lion that are part of a kind of lion's nature. And if we were to force it to act against its nature, so if we were to force a lion to be, you know, a vegetarian, like you only have to watch Madagascar to see what the consequences of that is. It's not natural and there's something kind of cruel about it. And the same can be said for humans, right? We have the right to be what we are. And what we are is beings with a will and a rational intellect with inherent dignity and a capacity to access the spiritual and the transcendent. So that means that as a human being, I have the right to use and to nourish my intellect by seeking the truth and by learning through education. I have the right to use my will to make free decisions. I have the right to live in a manner that is dignified. And I also have the right to pursue the spiritual and the transcendent. Okay, now in more practical terms, what concretely does that mean that I have a right to? Well, one place where we can go to find a really good summary of concrete human rights is the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And Pope John Paul II referred to this declaration as a true milestone on the path of humanity's moral progress. So the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is a really good summary of the kind of practical things that we have a right to. But Pope John Paul II, in an encyclical called Centesimus Annus, also kind of summarizes some of these concrete human rights. And the first and most fundamental right that he names is the right to life. Okay, I have the right to be alive from the moment that I come into existence until the moment that I die. No one has the right to take my life from me. So even if I got really sick or I had a disability or I was a baby or I was in a coma, I have a right to my life. Obviously, there are situations of self-defense, right, where, say, someone corners me in an alleyway with a knife and tries to kill me, and in the process of defending myself, that person loses their life. That's different to me deliberately and not inadvertently or in the process of defending myself, deliberately seeking to take the life of another human being. No one has that right. 
Now, any human person who is alive also has the right to live, right? And to live with dignity. So at the most fundamental level, living means, you know, having access to those natural things that will keep me alive, like food and air and water and shelter and safety. But in addition to those basic things, I also have the right to live in a manner that is in line with my human dignity. So say that I am alive, okay, I'm I'm staying alive as it were, (laughs) but I'm experiencing poverty and I'm in unstable or unsafe housing. Maybe I'm deprived of social interaction or I have a job that is mindless and demeaning. Okay, I can't look at that person and say, oh, well, you know, that person is surviving, they're alive, so they've got all of their human rights. No, that would be like treating humans like Tamagotchis. You remember Tamagotchis? For for the Gen Zs listening to this, Tamagotchis were like these tiny little computer pets that would ping you when they needed to eat or sleep or pee or whatever. And your only task was just to keep them alive. Humans aren't like that. They need more than just to be alive. They need to live and thrive. Now, human thriving or flourishing ultimately has to do with us accessing those spiritual transcendent goods, being able to contemplate beauty, to develop our characters, to seek and discover truth, to live out of faith, etc. However, if we're going to access those transcendent realities, there is a degree of, you know, human material education and stability and security that we need first. So if you've ever read the book North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell, one of my favorite books ever, there's also a really fantastic BBC adaptation that is well worth watching. And actually North and South is a really good book to read just in general, if you're thinking about these kind of social morality questions, because that book is really concerned with a lot of the ideas that we're discussing at the moment. Anyway, in North and South, there's this family that have moved from the kind of idyllic pastoral South of England to the North, where there's a lot of poverty and industrialization. And the father of the family goes around trying to offer his services as a tutor of like classic literature and philosophy to people. And of course, no one wants to take him up on it. No one's interested. They're all like, like those are cute books, but I am trying to just survive. All I'm thinking about right now is where my next meal is coming from. I don't have the time or the energy to think about transcendent truths. So in order to achieve that kind of spiritual flourishing, there is a kind of basic level of human flourishing that is also really important. So in Gaudium et Spes, it talks about how human beings have the right to education, employment, a good reputation, respect, appropriate information, activity, the protection of privacy and rightful freedom. So these are all things that allow us to flourish as human beings and that lay the foundation so that we can then access those transcendent spiritual realities. And that's the final aspect of my rights as a human person, that I have the right to seek, know, and love the truth, to receive an education, to have access to beauty, philosophy, art, literature, music, to receive adequate information, to practice a particular faith. This is something that Pope John Paul II talks about, that we have the right to live in accordance with our faith. Now note that he doesn't say that we have the right 
only to live in accordance with the Christian faith, right? The Catholic Church doesn't say, I mean, obviously she's not a relativist and she thinks that Catholicism is the fullness of the truth. But at the same time, respect for the freedom of other people means respecting and even fighting for their right to genuinely seek truth through the practice of their own faith. Okay, so all of these rights that we've described, our right to life and dignity and transcendence, these are fundamental to all human beings. No matter who they are or where they are, we all have equal rights. And this brings us to the topic of equality. Now, equality is another of those words that's kind of gotten a bit lost in the mix in recent times. Equality does not mean that everyone has the right to the exact same things as everyone else. Rather, Equality means that everyone shares the same fundamental human rights in whatever form that takes for them individually. So in Gaudium et Spes, it says, all men are not alike from the point of view of varying physical power and the diversity of intellectual and moral resources. Nevertheless, with respect to the fundamental rights of the person, every type of discrimination, whether social or cultural, based on sex, race, color, social condition, language or religion, is to be overcome and eradicated as contrary to God's intent. Therefore, although rightful differences exist between men, the equal dignity of persons demands that a more humane and just condition of life be brought about. So that's a very long quote, but based Basically, what it's saying is that we're all different and differences are fine, but we all share the same fundamental human rights. So as an analogy, when I was a kid, my sisters and I, we all had different hobbies and these hobbies aligned with our personal skills and preferences. So my older sister did ballet and she was a very good ballerina. I tried to do ballet and I got expelled because I was so uncoordinated. My younger sister did long distance running. I had a heart condition. So when I tried to do long distance running, I went blue and nearly passed out. So that wasn't for me either. My baby sister played the trumpet. She's very good at the trumpet. I tried to play the trumpet and it sounded like a tonal fart. In the end, the thing that ended up suiting me best and that I enjoyed the most was doing drama classes to the surprise of no one. Now, imagine if I had gone to my parents and demanded that I had the exact same rights as my sister and that I should be able to do long distance running just like her. Well, not only would that have not been true justice, it also would have made me miserable. It wouldn't have been good for me either. However, on the other hand, imagine if my parents had sat me down and said, look, Caitlin, you don't have the same skills and capacities as your sisters. Therefore, we want you to go and sit in the corner and your hobby is going to be stamp collecting for the rest of your life. Even though you hate it and you think it's boring, you're just going to have to deal with it. And in fact, you should be grateful that you at least have a hobby. So, you know, off you trot, go do stamp collecting. That also would not have been justice or equality. So I might not have had the, the right to the exact same things as my sisters, but at the same time, I still had the right to find something that suited me, that I enjoyed, that was meaningful and that would allow me to kind of grow and flourish as a child. Now, a kind of concrete social example of this would be in the area of work. So John Paul II talks about how every person has the right to work and to support themselves and their dependents through their work. Now, not everyone is going to do the exact same kinds of jobs. People have different qualifications and abilities and interests, and that is completely fine. 
but everyone has the same right to do work that is meaningful and dignified. So we can't look at someone and say, well, you know, you have a disability, therefore you don't get to choose what your job is. You just are going to be given a job and you should be grateful for it. And it's going to be a job that is menial, that you find deeply boring, that provides no opportunity for personal growth. And you don't feel like you're contributing meaningfully to the world at all. And you should feel lucky because you have a right to work and now you've got a job. So lucky you. Okay, no, that's not equality or justice. That's treating a human person as though they were like a mindless machine. Equality means an equal right to flourish in whatever way is appropriate to our personal circumstances. So another example of this principle of equality is in the area of education. So when it comes to education, we can't just say, okay, everyone in the world has a blanket right to be educated up until this point, right? Up until the age of 16 or the end of high school or university. And you all need to be educated in the same things, the same books and literature and history, etc. In a declaration on Christian education called Gravissimum Educationis, Pope Paul VI says that all men of every race, condition and age have an inalienable right to an education that is in keeping with their ultimate goal, their ability, their sex, the culture and tradition of their country and their fraternal association with others. So as with work, everyone has the right to be as educated as they can be in a manner that is appropriate to their interests and goals and abilities and where they live, etc. Now, again, Even when it comes to people who have a different set of capabilities and capacities, that doesn't mean that they don't have the right to the best possible education. So, for instance, in the high school that I went to, there was, you know, a program for students who weren't going to go on to university and who were more focused on learning kind of life skills. And honestly, the teachers who ran that program were so amazing and so dedicated and they made sure that those students got the best possible education that they could get in a manner that was suited to their interests and their skills and their capacities. Now, the catechism in point 1936 says man is not equipped with everything he needs for developing his bodily and spiritual life. He needs others. And then in point 1937, it says God wills that each receive what he needs from others and that those endowed with particular talents share the benefits with those who need them. So we've talked about how everyone has the right to grow and develop as a human. And it's very easy for us to kind of theoretically acknowledge and accept that idea. Like, oh, yes, of course, everyone has equal rights. But what the catechism is telling us here is that there's more to it than that, that we actually as a society need to reach out and help those people who don't have the resources or capacities to access the things that they have a right to. So we've talked before about how human rights go hand in hand with human responsibilities. So I have the right to grow and flourish, but in turn, I then also have the responsibility to help others to grow and flourish as well. So you know how in the last episode we talked about the principle of subsidiarity and how the state shouldn't step in if someone is actually capable of doing something on their own? Well, the flip side of that is that if someone is not capable of achieving or doing something on their own, particularly if it's related to their fundamental human rights, that's the point at which the state or, you know, we as a society or individuals, someone should step in and help that person to access the things that they have a right to. 
So point 1931 of the Catechism says that everyone should look upon his neighbor without any exception as another self. So those personal rights that I have and that I rightfully hold so dear, I should be equally passionate about making sure that other people have those rights as well. And the Catechism goes on to say that the duty of making oneself a neighbor to others and serving them actively becomes even more urgent when it involves the disadvantaged. So this is where we come to something called the preferential option for the poor. The Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Catholic Church says in point 182 that the marginalized and in all cases those whose living conditions interfere with their proper growth should be the focus of particular concern. So in other words, we all have the responsibility to actively serve those who are poor. And that can mean economic poverty, but it can also be in the areas of education and spirituality and knowledge and skills. It also refers, as it says in the compendium, to people who are marginalized. So refugees or migrants, people who are sleeping rough or experiencing family or domestic violence, social outcasts, the people who are the tax collectors and lepers of our time, those are the people that we have an obligation to kind of specially care for. And of course, we can't all help everyone in every way all of the time, but in whatever ways we can, we should try to. And when we do help others, this isn't us going above and beyond and being like super holy. That's actually just a fundamental obligation that we have as humans. So I don't know if you've ever experienced this before. I have definitely done this before where I've like done something basic. Like I've given money to charity or volunteered my time somewhere. And I'm like walking around just being like, oh my gosh, I am literally a saint. Like I'm pretty much amazing. Someone should canonize me. And we get the feeling like we're doing something super amazing. And our friends might say to us like, wow, that is so generous and kind. But actually, which is fulfilling like a basic obligation that we have. It's like our Lord says in Luke 17, 10, When you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, we have only done what we ought to have done. Actually, I'm going to include a link to a clip from a show called We Can Be Heroes. It's this Australian satire comedy, and it features this character called Jemay King, who is a send-up of someone who thinks that they're amazing for doing basic acts of charity. Jemay is a really good example of what not to do. So this can be a really good thing to take to, you know, my examination of conscience to think about, okay, where are the areas where I have plenty? Am I someone who's really smart or really wealthy or really talented in a certain area? Or maybe I've got a lot of spiritual formation. I'm really well formed. How am I sharing those talents with others? So this obligation that we have to help others isn't just a kind of dry, empty, ticker box kind of obligation that we have. Like I've got to do X amount of nice things for other people so that I can be a good person. It should be grounded in what the catechism calls human solidarity, which it also terms friendship or social charity. And that's point 1939 of the catechism. So this obligation to help others should be grounded in love for others and a sense of fraternity that we are all part of the one human family. 
And in fact, the catechism goes on to say that socioeconomic problems can be resolved only with the help of solidarity. We can think of 1 Corinthians 13. If I give away all my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. So it's no good, you know, doing acts of charity and being a nice person and helping others out and giving to the poor. All of that doesn't matter if we don't have this underlying sense of solidarity with the people around us. And the Catechism talks about the different types of solidarity that need to exist. Solidarity of the poor among themselves, as well as between rich and poor, and of workers among themselves, as well as between employers and employees. So if you've ever studied Marxism to any extent, you might be aware that like a Marxist mentality is one in which the workers and the employers are like fundamentally in conflict with each other. The rich and the poor are fundamentally in conflict with each other and they have to fight each other for a share of resources. The principle of solidarity is the opposite of this. It tells us that there has to be love between rich and poor and employers and employees. And without that mutual respect and love, then socioeconomic problems are never going to be solved, especially in the long term. So we can return again to North and South. The main character in that book, Margaret, particularly because she's from a completely different world, she comes into this area where the workers are constantly in conflict with their employers. And she can just see that it's ridiculous. She keeps saying to them, she's like, you have to talk to each other like human beings. Otherwise you are never going to solve your problems. She has this incredible, like really fiery speech where she confronts the head of this factory while all of the workers are downstairs, you know, rioting and and having a strike. And she confronts him and it says, Mr. Thornton said, Margaret shaking all over with her passion, go down this instant. If you are not a coward, go down and face them like a man, speak to your workmen as if they were human beings speak to them kindly. (laughs) I love it. She's so fiery. She's the best. (laughs) And it's true, right? In the novel, you see how things only start to change once, you know, the employer and the employee actually start to see each other as human beings with dignity and worth. And they sit down and look at each other face to face and eye to eye and actually have a conversation. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) that is everything that we're going to cover for the church's social doctrine. Now, over the last couple of episodes, we've covered a lot, a lot of topics. And if we were going to summarize all of it, really what the church's social doctrine comes down to is a need to balance my rights with the rights of others. So I have inherent dignity, worth and rights, and so does everyone else around me. So at all times, I need to find ways to respect both of those things, my rights and the rights of others. And as soon as I lose sight of one or the other, or I emphasize one over the other, that's when I kind of start to go wrong. So the church is always encouraging us to keep those things in balance. Okay, so that's everything we have for today. Next episode, we're going to talk about salvation, grace and the moral law and justification. It's going to be awesome. Also, as always, thank you to the people who have been sharing the podcast with others. If you've been finding the podcast helpful and you would like others to have access to it, the best thing you can do, apart from actually sharing it with individuals, is to subscribe or to leave a rating or a review on whatever app you're using, because then that makes the podcast more visible to other people. Yeah, okay. Well, that's enough from me and I will talk to you in two weeks. Can't wait. Bye.